This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. Whether you're working on a personal project or managing your enterprise's infrastructure, Linode has the pricing, support, and scale you need to take your project to the next level. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com sustain. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Sustain, the podcast where we talk about sustaining open source in the long haul, whether that means the coders, the maintainers, or the community at large. Today, we have two panelists. We have Richard Litauer, of course, that's me, and then we have Justin Dorfman. Hello, everyone. And we have an awesome guest today we're very excited about talking to, Don Goodman-Wilson. Howdy. Don's calling from Amsterdam today, I believe where he works for his own tech consultancy, Katsudan uh, Tech, which is pretty awesome. He's also on the board for Maintainerati, which is a really cool organization I actually don't know enough about. So I would like to hear a bit more about that. I guess that's a pretty good int- uh, part to start talking. Uh, what is Maintainerati and what do they do? I think that Maintainerati is, as an organization, we have a, a mission that's very, very similar to that of Sustains. We are. Let me interrupt you for the, before you go any further. Sustain was completely inspired by Maintainerati. On the first website, it said totally inspired by Maintainerati. So <laughs> for you to say it's like Sustain is no. It, sustain is like Maintainerati. Other way around. Other way around. Yeah. Fair. I'm relatively new to, to Maintainerati. I've only been with the organization for less than a year and a half, which actually seems longer than it than it feels at this point. <laughs> The Maintainerati Foundation's mission is to support the maintainers of the global digital infrastructure to build healthy, productive, inclusive, and sustainable communities. So what this means in practice, at least at the moment, is that we are focused on creating a series of events that are small and local in scale in order to reach out to particular communities of maintainers, to engage them in conversation, open-ended, unconference-style conversation, to really dig at the kinds of challenges that they face. And sometimes these are very predictable sorts of things. I'm not getting paid and that's terrible. Sometimes they're more surprising things. Things like, I really like it when somebody tells me that I'm doing a good job and it makes me feel motivated, but nobody ever actually does that. So should we be going around telling people they're doing good jobs? I don't know, maybe, but that was an interesting and fun point that, that came up, right? How do, you, how, do you, how do you create this network of support among maintainers? How do you create a sense of cohesion uh, uh, and camaraderie amongst open source maintainers, right? It turns out like nobody really has good answers to that. And then we, the idea then is we, we take these conversations. Sometimes they're just people up to complain and there's people complaining at each other and sort of filter through that and find like, what are the real underlying issues here that, that are driving the, the complaints, the, the conversations that are having and write them up as a set, of, a set of challenges, recommended sets, best practices. We want to be very opinionated about what we're doing. We're still working on the report from the last event we hope to have that out within the, the next few weeks. It's been our first time putting one of these together. So it's been kind of a, a very long learning process as, as we build this. But eventually the goal is to have enough of these small local conversations that we can begin to see cultural differences arise in different open source maintainer communities and to understand the, the origins of these cultural differences and be able to build a very nuanced picture of 
what it is that different communities need and what is truly universal recommendations that affect all, all maintainers together. Right, so that we can approach solving problems that maintainers face in this sort of nuanced, culturally sensitive kind of way. So, for example, right now, one thing that we have absolutely no insight into whatsoever is the Japanese open source community. I, I know they're there. We see them there, right? You can find them on, on GitHub, but because they operate largely in Japanese, and I don't speak Japanese very well, a little bit, but not nearly enough to have these sorts of conversations. It's very, and, and conversely, the English can be very challenging for them. We, we have no insight into the kinds of challenges that they face aside from, you know, what's what's available in English media, which, which is not a lot, truth be told. I, let me just add something. I totally agree with that. See, for me, I'm seeing a lot of Chinese with my job. And it's crazy because I know the docs are good because they're really complete. I just have no idea what they're saying. Even Even if I turn on translate, I'm just like... Okay. Yeah. I see what's going on here. Kind of, but yeah, I mean, it's, you're so right. Like I think a lot does get lost in translation, but it's definitely something that we have to think about, especially from a sustainability standpoint is because not everyone speaks English, you know? So it's, it's very important to keep that in mind and talk about localization and all that stuff. So I'm glad you brought that up. Thanks. Yeah. So that's, that's sort of our goal with, with maintainer Roddy. Right? which again, I think is, is very similar to the goal that Sustain has, and apparently it's no surprise. And that's, that's lovely to hear, right? That we've got multiple organizations working this from their own angles, right? To help, to help make this a, a better place for everybody who's involved in it. Yeah, we, we've, we've kind of taken the stance that we are sustainers while you are maintainers and every kind of open source function, whether you're a contributor, maintainers, sustainers, it's all important that we definitely are all on the same page for the most part. You know, we want open source to live. So it's very cool to see these communities sort of taking their own verticals, but also like aligning, like you being on the podcast here and sharing what you're going through with Maintainerati and all the other things. Let me ask you, is Jess uh, Frazzle still involved with the uh, organization? No, she handed it off to us in November 2017, I believe it was. She's no longer involved. So the current board consists of me, Gawain Lynch, and Aaron Taylor. Uh, Gawain and Aaron were the organizers of a Maintainerati event in Amsterdam a few years back. They're actually based in Den Haag, The Hague, which is just down the road for me. So it's been very convenient to, to meet with them and organize the events uh, together from here in Europe. Love it. Now, can I ask you, I used to be in DevRel. I see you've, you have quite a uh, portfolio. You were at Slack, you're at GitHub. Uh, what does DevRel mean to you? Because as you probably know, DevRel has many different meanings. And I would love to know, what does it mean to you? DevRel to me means empowering other developers with the tools that the company Workflow provides, right? So it's very much, for me, it's very much about teaching other people, bringing them new tools and Yes, empowering them, in fact, with, with these tools and these, these teachings that you bring to them. What does empowering mean to you? So empowering means quite a lot of different things. And I think the meaning for that has evolved for you over the years, but it extends very squarely into the sort of work that I'm, I'm trying to do today. So empowering means certainly educating in the sense of not just teaching new skills, but bringing awareness about new tools, new languages, new skills that you could learn that you might not previously have been aware of. 
and giving you a sense of your own agency in the world around you and that these tools and these pieces of education are points of leverage uh, that you can use with your own agency to affect the world around you, ideally for better. Yeah. My my boss, my old boss, Chris Euland, and friend of mine as well, he gave me the best advice when I went into dev advocacy and, and DevRel, essentially. And he's like, I was like, what am I supposed to do? He's like, be everywhere. Anytime there's a discussion about content delivery, you are there. Anytime anyone mentions MaxCDN, you are there. So I'm like, oh, okay, I can do that. It has a lot of different meanings, but I think to the bottom line is, you know, always being in the discussion when someone's talking about your product, as well as kind of being the conduit between your users, the developers, as well to the engineering department. So, you know, I've always kind of looked at it that way. And as I said earlier, not to beat a dead horse, but it means a lot of different meanings. And I'm just glad that you kind of see it the same way. Yeah, I think, for example, another really important facet of, of empowerment is what you just mentioned, which is representing them to the, the community that, or the, the company that you work for, right? Uh, so giving yeah. them a voice within, within the, the product conversations that you're, you're having at the, the, the company that you represent, right? Um, so, you know, again, it's another sort of point of leverage for, for exercising agency. Well, I'm going to come to you with some bug reports, or I'm going to come to you with some feature requests or, or just stories about how I'm using your, your API or, or your tool. And you're there to listen to that. And you're there to, to not just listen, but bring that story back to other people who work and it can have a positive outcome on the product that you're building. Yeah. It, it, because it's like you can build the product for yourselves, but if no one uses it, what's the point? At the same time, there is a fine balance. You know, you can't, especially like what we were talking earlier with telling everyone good job, you know, you can't be everything to everyone. You don't want to create this like trophy culture, like, hey, awesome point. We're going to definitely put that in and just make these like promises that either come in and they are not wanted by 99% of the other users. But yeah, it's a fine balance. I think, you know, seeing that you were at Slack and GitHub that are obviously very, you know, every developer knows those two brands. What were the types of like issues that you tackled first at Slack and then at GitHub that you kind of never would think that would, I don't know, it, it, what, were the, what were the challenges at Slack and GitHub that you faced? Mm. They were very different. My role was very different at both of these jobs because DevRel is never one single thing to, to, to one, one company or to different companies. At Slack, the most unexpected challenge that I faced is that the API that they have was designed simultaneously for private and public consumption. So their API, their public API actually grew out of their private API. So the private API is for the, the web app or the, the client, you know, to talk to the back end to send messages and receive messages and, you know, put emoji on things and so on and so forth. And the thought was, well, we could just start opening up bits of this uh, to people and it can become a very powerful tool. And then maybe we can, you know, build applications or, or, ooh, chatbots, the chatbot thing's kind of cool, you know, uh, with, with this sort of API. And of course, over time, what happened is, is, in fact, the engineering teams diverged. So there was the platform team, which was focused on building the public API. And then the, you know, the, the more traditional backend team that was working on the private API, but they're, they're one and the same. They're still one and the same product. And so we had two teams competing. When you're building a private API, you have total control over it right? You, breaking changes are not really breaking changes because you're coordinating very closely with your front end team. 
and you want to you want to be able to move fast, iterate quickly, and yeah, as it were, break things. Whereas with a public API, you need stability, you need predictability, you need to not not break people's apps uh, because you're not in such close coordination with them. There's so many of them, and maybe you don't even have conversations with them because they're. As it turns out, many of them were Japanese and none of us spoke Japanese and none of them knew how to get in touch with us. So it turns out these two competing concerns were, were a large part of a large part of my job coming back and saying, Hey, we, we broke something. How did that break? How did that conversation go that led to this breaking change? How do we build better communication processes inside of the company to ensure that these two sides are, are talking to each other, the private and the public API sides, so that we're avoiding this sort of situation in the future? And how do we balance the concerns on both sides? I was biased. In, in retrospect, I can see that I was biased, right? Like you, you do have to find a balance between these, but when your job is representing the, the consumers of the API, of course, you know, I, I run in their full blast with like, no, we're doing it all wrong. Well, as I said before, it's a fine balance. It can't just be all the user's feedback. You have to balance the business interest of the company that's paying your paycheck, but balance, you know? So I think that that's the greatest challenge of DevRel. And also this kind of rolls over to open source, you know, in terms of dealing with consumers that are opening up issues. Those are like customers. Those are your users. So I think that you got to, a really good learning experience, especially with internationalization and and that type of sustainability type thing. So I'm I'm really excited. It's just cool to hear because like, you know, from the outside, you you see these large organizations like Slack and GitHub, and you're like, oh, they have it all together. Everything's streamlined. There's no issues. It's just perfect. But it's good to see, like, you know, by the way, everyone's laughing right now. So don't don't no, think I'm all on mute. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, but but but, but seriously, yeah, but seriously, like it's just, I think it's very important for others to hear that are in smaller organizations, like that might be kicking themselves, like, oh, why can't we do it like Slack? Why can't we do it like GitHub? All these organizations have problems. That business is problems. You know, no problems, no business. So, yeah, I think that's great. Oh yeah. man. Yeah, at least when I was there, I mean, like, I'm not going to lie. And everybody has the same story. The The code base was a tire fire. Um, I hear it's better now, but it's, I, I can't help but think of that XKCD comic strip about engineers talking about elevators. Oh, they're very safe. And airplanes, oh, they're very safe. And boating machines, God, no, don't touch that. <laughs> it will catch fire. It is the devil. Yeah, which always reminds me of the Calvin Hobbes strip where he's talking, you know, he's using a toaster and it breaks. And then he says, it's a wonder anyone ever gets on an airplane, uh, which is kind of, you know, a valid point. How do these things work? And, you know, the airplane industry also has issues. So one of the things I want to get to, I'm, I'm loving this conversation, and it's great to have some background into where you're coming from and how you ended up where you are. Because if people on the internet don't know, Don has written this amazing post about open source and how it's a bit broken. And that's what I kind of really want to hear about today. We've been talking a bit about how it's a balance. It's a fine balance between business interests and the interests of the community and trying to figure out how that works. And sometimes you don't even have access to the community and that stuff. So how do you balance, say, the Japanese community versus internal business interests in San Francisco for Slack or GitHub? That's that's difficult. One of the things I wonder a lot is whether this inherent balance actually teeters a lot more towards business than most open source developers seem to think. 
a lot of times we'll just take a repo, put it on GitHub. Maybe we're doing it for work. Maybe we're doing it for else ourselves. Put a license on it like MIT or ISC or Apache, or maybe for, you know, a bit forward thinking GPL and think, well, that's it. I've done the good work. Great. I'm an open source engineer. Everything's going to get better. Fully automated luxury communism is coming. But I'm not sure that's the case. And Don, you've thought about this probably longer than I have. So I, I would love to hear, could you explain what you talk about in your post a bit? I think the current situation is radically skewed in favor of, of the business interests. How is it skewed towards business interests? So it's skewed towards business interests in the sense that businesses uh, typically have much larger sums of capital to bring to bear in a given situation, right? And this gives them tremendous amounts of leverage for creating value. You know, when you're talking about rates of growth, you know, we love to talk about the compounding effect of interest and hockey stick growth, right? When the leverage that you have in the world is very small, as it is for most open source maintainers, look, I wrote this code, I put it on GitHub, have it, right? That's all the leverage you have in the situation. It's very small. You're going to see very small returns from it. When the leverage that you have available to you is enormous, the, the amount of gain that you, you get from leveraging the leverage, from using the leverage, is far out of proportion to what's available to maintainers without that kind of force behind them. So what we see is uh, large businesses are able to leverage the free labor of open source maintainers to generate tremendous amount of value from the work that they have put into it. And then that value, there's no incentive structure in place at all, really, for businesses then to provide a share of that value back to the labor force that allowed them to, to leverage it in the first place. So I say there, there's there's not a lot of incentive structure. There's certainly a number of organizations and a number of programs and projects out there that are working on trying to, to create a culture that normalizes giving back to open source projects. But the incentives beyond sort of a mild social pressure coming from the maintainers themselves really just, just aren't there. And it's not clear what they look like because in an open source model or in a, in a free software model, right, it's, it's fairly explicitly encoded into the open source definition, for example, or the, the four freedoms in the, the, the free software definition, that there is no obligation really on the part of large businesses to give back. So long as they're not giving the, you know, they're not distributing the code themselves. And in a SaaS world, they're generally not. That was a very long-winded answer to the question, but I hope that was helpful. Well, it's a long topic to wind about, so don't worry about it. I agree with you, and frequent listeners to this podcast will probably know that by now. I know there are alternatives to the open source ethos that you've been thinking about, and I know other people have been thinking about. Can you talk a bit about what ethical implications might mean for open source developers or like ethical source? So I think that sort of segues into, if we have this problem, which we all acknowledge, how do we fix it? How do we work on it? How do we make it better for the developers and maintainers? So there are a couple of different axes of ethical issues surrounding open source, of which the, the, the financial ones is just one of them, right? So this, there is this disproportionate amount of value that's not being folded back into the community, and this creates a, an unjust system of labor. But on top of that, at the same time, there are other organizations and possibly even individuals who are leveraging the, the work of open source maintainers for, I mean, to put it bluntly, for evil, which is strictly allowed 
and explicitly allowed under the, the OSD and the free software model. And fine, like we all know this getting into it in some abstract sense that this is this is a possible outcome. Uh, but what we're seeing is, is two things. One, more and more, it's easier to see that even small contributions to projects that you wouldn't think would have any 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 use in an evil enterprise would show up in a use case like this. And that turns out, yeah, it turns out to be false. And two, there's a growing awareness that, in fact, the, the code that we write has downstream effects beyond just the, the people who are consuming our code. And that it, it really does have an impact on the world. The software we create has a huge impact on the world, for better or for worse. Uh, and there's a growing awareness of this. And there's a growing sense that I don't want my software to be used to create injustice in the world. That's terrible. And this this is, I think, a relatively new sentiment because it just wasn't apparent to us before that this was going to be a, a, a real concern. But but it is now. And these two things have sort of come together at the same time. They're both ethical problems with open source. It's not clear that there's like one solution that's going to cover both of them. Just to, to clarify for listeners, there's actually a question on the OSI website, which is, if I make my source open source, can it be used for evil? And then there's like a paragraph answer that says, yes, because that's what open source means. It has to be able to be used by anyone. You can't put a qualification on your code saying this can only be used for good. If you do that, it's not open source. Yeah, so it's, section, it's section five, no discrimination against persons or groups. Which is kind of put in there it, historically, not because, you know, the OSI really is in favor of the Pentagon using stuff to, you know, make drones and the like but much more because GPL was seen as a real threat to the open source ecosystem very early in the game where people were putting all sorts of copyleft licenses on stuff. And then everyone was saying, well, that's not open source because if everyone can't use it, then it can't get folded back into business interests. And then we're going to, you know, upset the entire economy of open source. However, what we're seeing now is a lot more where people are actually seeing the ramifications of their code as software has eaten the world. And they're seeing ramifications which are really negative, which they don't want. One of the best examples is it was a chef library, maybe an Ansible library, where a maintainer found out that his code was being used by a subcontractor for ICE. And ICE is currently having major humanitarian issues on the border. Don, you have something? I was just going to say, if you want the names, it was chef. And the, the, the maintainer's name was Seth Vargo. So Seth realized that his code was being used for ICE which is the Immigration and Customs Enforcement arm of the U.S. government, which was currently putting people into cages on the border and trying to disrupt the amnesty situation, which we had previously worked out with a bit better humanitarian goals. Wow, I wonder if I'm ineloquent because it actually makes me very uncomfortable talking about this, especially as a holder of a U.S. passport. Seth Vargo, which was really great, said, listen, I don't want my code to be used by ICE. I, I just don't want to. And so he closed sourced it because he couldn't keep it open source and say, don't use it for ice. And so this is the sort of ramifications where we're seeing now. Now, that's an extreme example. We're not saying that your Facebook React starter app is going to be used by evil company LTD. I, I, have, I have feelings about React. Like React is a great <laughs> piece of software. React was created essentially as a... As a so it was created as a way of, of open washing Facebook. And it was also yeah. created as a way yes. of helping people incentivize work on making Facebook work, work a bit faster. And in an ethical and, world, and advertising Instagram. and Instagram. Yeah. It was an Instagram project as well. 
Oh, I didn't realize that. And we could talk about the ramifications of that later. What I wasn't trying to draw you know, attention to React. I was trying to say, you know, code 2.0 that you're you're committing to GitHub probably won't be misused. But the larger projects where we invest our time, where we form our communities, may be used by interests which are orthogonal to the maintainer's own. But the code license that we put on it, which we've been using in the community, generally ones approved by the OSI, don't allow for maintainers to actually make a stipulation about what the ethical use of their software is down the road. And so that's kind of what Don was referring to when he was saying, you know, can it be used for evil? Yes. That sort of whole discussion there. And there's a lot of literature on that subject now, which is fantastic. And it's also starting to enter the common parlance, which I think is great. I mean, we're mentioning it on this podcast. So as a result of this sort of figuring out what do we do as a community when things are used for interests which aren't our own, and just to make a statement, not every open source maintainer is actually the same. We all have different ethical issues, which is why I think maintainerati's work trying to figure out what the cultural values are for the open source movement is fantastic. Not everyone's the same. Yesterday, I saw a job in my area that I was thinking, you know, that might be kind of interesting to look into, but then I saw they were doing DOD defense contracts. It's fine for the people working at that company. It's not fine for me. You know, so things are different. But as a result of these conversations, we have a whole lot of things coming out of it, which are also very fascinating and interesting. One of them is ethical software. One of them is the Hippocratic license. I believe that's what it's called. Don, could you talk a bit more about that? The Hippocratic license was a response to, to more of the, the second sort of ethical concern that I brought up, the sort that, that we've just been discussing right here. In that it, it essentially is an MIT-style license with an additional clause at the end, which stipulates that you cannot use the software in a manner that contravenes the United Nations uh, Declaration of Human Rights, uh, which is a document uh, that was chosen specifically because it provides a, a very reasonable universal baseline for like, what is an evil act, right? It's like if, it, if an act crosses that line, like it's very difficult to say that it was not an evil act, right? This declaration was signed by nearly every nation uh, on the face of the planet and was used in a great many places as a definition for what a, what a human right is and what a human rights violation looks like. So it's used, for example, by the International Court of Justice when you want to bring a case against the leader of a government for human rights violations, right? That they're, they're going to look at this declaration and use this as a, as a litmus test for, did these actions really violate human rights? This um, wasn't written by your friends who live in The Hague, was it? Because that would just be weird. Uh, no, not my friends in The, in the Hague, no. But definitely okay. <laughs> uh, The Hague was, was involved in this. Yeah. It's, it's really hard not to take the tram past the, the Peace Palace and, and not to tear up. Yeah, when when taking the the tram past that for for everything that has has transpired there, and and this was chosen precisely because in, in many cases we could have reasonable debates about whether or not a, a given action was wrong uh, and the, how wrong it was, but but there there are actions you know on on one side that are clearly good and on the other side that are that are clearly bad, and this was this was chosen to help sort of delineate those actions that are clearly bad and, and something that we can universally agree upon. It's, uh, it's a bit controversial, as you can imagine, for precisely the reasons that, that we've been talking about. It is seen by, by some. Bruce Perrins has commented on this in particular. Bruce Perrins was one of the authors of the open source definition, and, and he weighed in and said, look, this is, this is discriminating against persons or, or groups of, of persons, right? This is saying, Quite plainly, here are cases where you are not allowed to use the software, 
and that is not within the spirit or the, the letter of the open source definition as he interprets it. There's some open debate about this. It continues to be submitted uh, for consideration by the OSD. I have not been, been keeping up with this. There, there are some who are optimistic that it is, in fact, compatible with the, the open source definition because the notion of discrimination against people or groups of people, that it's not discriminating against people. It's discriminating against the actions that people can take, right, which is different, right? So it's still open to everybody, but we expect a certain standard of behavior from you. So I, I don't know where this is going to end up. It's, it's kind of exciting to watch as it's unfolded over the, the last few months. I think the only way that this is going to work is if the open source definition gets forked to another organization that doesn't have the word open in it. And I respect both of your viewpoints, both of you. I just don't see how this, you know, we're splitting hairs here. Like, oh, it doesn't mean people. It means, you know, <laughs> it means that it's their actions. Yeah, yeah, yes. Thank you. It's their actions. So, I mean, not to sound like Morty from Rick and Morty, but isn't evil an artificial construct? Like, I understand that, you know, people don't like what ICE is doing and all of that other things, but that's what you signed into, whether you knew it or not. Like, open source has section number five of no discrimination against persons or groups. Not to say that the conversation can't go on. One, one, one sec, Richard. I, I'm not saying the, the, the conversation can't go on, but I also think that to make companies, look, without, without corporations, open source really would fall apart. I mean, who's going to host all of GitHub you know, on their own? Like, it just can't happen. You need money. We're talking about sustainability here. You need money to do this. So to start cherry picking what you like and what you don't like about the open source definition, I think that really it's dangerous in my opinion. And I'm looking for a rebuttal because I don't want to be in any echo chamber. I think that's a really interesting point you make that open source has it right there in 5.0 or 5.1. That's actually not the way I see it because open source isn't the OSI, isn't section 5.1. Open source is a mutable concept that we've been changing since it was first invented. Richard Stallman's been going around for years trying to say open source is something else. No, 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 no. He is a. He doesn't I, like the I, word. There's free software. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I know, but I'm saying we're splitting hairs into which you could drive the Titanic to mix my horrible. Metaphors. Okay, that, that's fair. And I think that things change over time, and I, I don't really want to go around touting Richard Stallman right now or in general, but I'm just saying it has changed in the past, and it may change in the future. What I'm interested in is the conversation that's happening around all this, because this conversation actually leads to really good long-term effects of people saying, maybe I won't commit that code openly, or maybe I'll talk to my project manager about the scope of this project before we continue working on it. Or maybe I'll internally uh, take this code to the Center for Humane Technology and work on trying to figure out whether it's actually ethical in the long run, or whether we should maybe work on different solutions to the problems that our business is facing. Or maybe it's better not to have a business and instead to have an NGO or just a de facto acephalous community. In the terms of like maintainerati, Don said, you know, he wasn't getting paid for his work as a maintainerati board. That should be re recompensed some way, but maybe just being part of the community itself allows them the freedom to talk about these conversations without having to deal with money and interest. So there's all sorts of variables that affect what goes on. And I think that's what's important, right? Don, what do you think? That was a horribly leading question. I don't really know why I said that. I'm gonna, I'm gonna no, this that is, this is yeah. good that we're having this conversation because it's, 
going to keep coming up all this year and all next year until it's resolved because it's very <laughs> controversial. And I like yeah. the fact that the, the definition is being challenged. That's the point of open source, you know, is to always challenge and move things forward. So Don, please, please come into this conversation. I know you got some insight. <laughs> I actually find myself, I'm, I'm not that interested in challenging the OSD the more I think on it. My, my opinion yeah. will change yeah. next week. So, so check back with me then. <laughs> while I'm still making up my mind about these sorts of things. But I recently gave a talk at FOSDEM that challenged the assumption that open is, is, is the right thing, right? Like we're all coming from this position, the shared assumption that absolute openness is, is an absolute unmitigated good that has the force of inevitability behind it. And I think a lot of this, and this is a position that, that I'm still working on, I'm still digging into the, the literature on this so that I can be sure I'm, I'm engaging with it appropriately. But, but I believe a lot of this came from Karl Popper's uh, very well-known work, very well-known inside philosophy anyway, The Open Society and Its Enemies, which he wrote in the aftermath of World War II as a critique of the totalitarian regimes had, that had arisen in Europe uh, that led to World War II. His goal was to design a society, essentially, or at least a, a way of knowing and a way of conversing within a society that had features of, of a liberal democracy, right, that had features of open participation by everybody because he saw these things as not existing inside of the totalitarian regimes. In particular, he saw that these regimes were able to rise to power through the suppression of, of contradictory ideas and through the suppression of certain kinds of conversations, which meant people simply weren't thinking about alternatives. It wasn't open to them. So he actually saw this as an, as an epistemological problem, a problem of knowledge that's available to people within the society. And he thought, if we, had, if we had a society that was completely open, where all knowledge was free for everybody to have, to access, to share, right, that we could move away from the horrors that led us to World War II and into you know, the, the, the peaceful liberal democracies of the, of the future. But I think that what we're seeing now in, in the 21st century is, in fact, uh, his notion of, of what was possible within an open society was was somewhat limited, right? The internet didn't exist then. We didn't have crazy Samizdat campaigns, propaganda campaigns, the scale and notion that, that he saw then, right? Propaganda worked very differently in World War II. It was, it was fairly obvious in many cases when something was propaganda and when it wasn't. Today, it's almost impossible to tell, and by design, we've gotten more sophisticated about how we control the flow of information. And so I don't think the kind of open society that he was looking for is, is even really is really even, it's not only possible, but, but two, it opens up, just like I talked about in the beginning, it creates an asymmetry between those with power and those without power. Those without power have the capability to control the narrative, to control the conversation in a way that those without power don't. As a result, I, I, I find myself questioning, like, well, what, what then is it about openness that, that we value, that we cling to it so tenaciously in the, the open source world? And I think what drives us there is that we, we very much like Popper's conclusion, right? We very much like the idea that we're trying to contribute to a just and free society in the world. And that's great. Of course we do. But if the tools that we have at our disposal for creating that just and equitable society are not doing the job, in fact, they're maybe even doing the opposite of the job, then I think we need to seriously reevaluate the philosophical assumptions that we're taking on in the name of trying to achieve that, that society through, through software. I totally Deep agree breath. with that. No, thank you so much. I, I've actually been drawing corollaries as well, mostly with uh, academic linguistics. So there's a lot of discussion around saving endangered languages and how do you do it properly. 
And as the field has grown, it used to be, you know, you would just, you know, take a guy, steal them from their continent, bring them to Britain, and then say, oh, that's really cool, and write down a list of words they said, and then, you know, it didn't really matter what happens to them. That actually happened with Native Americans. Pocahontas is a good example. She was a real person. And then there's sort of the, the as, as the field matured, it became, okay, well, let's listen to these people in their native environments and talk to them, and let's write down all their stories. As the field matured beyond that, we've gotten to the point now where it's like, actually, those stories don't belong in our database, or they belong with very strict protections on them. Because they're the intellectual property of the, say, the tribe we're talking to. This is what happened with Mulan, actually. There's, it was a private story that was culturally sent upon. And a lot of people were pissed off that Disney made a movie out of this story because it sort of co-opted the culture. And it, it really, for me, I thought about this a lot when I was a, a bit younger in, in, in linguistics. Because where's the line between openness as a great good and actually ethic openness, like ethical openness and trying to figure out how to take into account all the different players and all the different ramifications. And I think it's less of a, there's, I mean, there's no clear line in, in ethics in general. It just doesn't really happen. It's much more of a, huh, that's an interesting point. And then thinking about it, then changing your own internal compass and figuring out what goes on. And what I see now is that these conversations, and if you have the chance, everyone listening, go check out Don's talk. Is it on video? Is it, is it video? Yes. Please. Yes. Is it, was that FOSTEM 2020? I've heard a lot of good things about this talk on Twitter. I haven't had the time to check it out, but do go do that and go read his blog post, Open Source is Broken, because this is the field maturing. This is what maturity looks like. It's people looking in the mirror and asking themselves, what are we doing here? And how can I make myself look a bit better? Which is great, right? So yeah, I'm really excited. Yeah. Thank you so much, Don, for being on this podcast. It's been really great talking to you. And around this point, we generally start to wrap up before we go on to Spotlight, I have a question for you, which is where can people find you on the internet besides going and looking at your awesome FOSTEM talk and besides looking at Open Source is Broken? Who are you online and do you want a following at all? I am on Twitter, by and large, the hell site that, oh God, it's such a moral cesspool. <laughs> but it's, it's a useful tool for at least starting conversations. So I'm on Twitter at D.E. Goodman Wilson. My DMs are open. I tweet fairly regularly and retweet about ethics and tech, ethics and software and ethics and open source. Awesome. Even a cesspool can keep beautiful ships afloat. So don't worry so much. <laughs> That's, I'm going to start using that. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome. I just thought of it. I hope other people have it because I thought it was a really nice metaphor. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, that is time for Spotlight. So we want to highlight three open source things that we've been using this week. Justin, what do you got for us? I got tickgit.com. It's a to-do browser to locate areas of your code you, you might have forgotten. So like, for instance, I put in Ruby's GitHub uh, URL and there's 374 to-dos over an average age of a to-do is four years. So it's T-I-C-K-G-I-T dot com. It's by this amazing kid. I, I, I think it's Paul. I forget his name. I'm, I'm so sorry, but his, his project's awesome. Awesome. Thank you. I'm actually not going to spotlight a open source project today. I'm going to spotlight something else called Front Porch Forum. Front Porch Forum is located, it started in Vermont. It's in all the towns here. I may have talked about it before in this podcast. I absolutely love it. It's a community forum where you can only sign up and see stuff if you live in that community. And it's a really great way to actually figure out what your neighbors are doing, figure out what events are going on, get 
free bookcases, help out other people. There was a great discussion last week about rewilding the state lawn in front of our Capitol building here in Vermont, which I think is a great idea. And Front Porch Forum, to me, has actually brought back a little of the joy that I saw on the internet 10 years ago when I was using Gumtree and early Craigslist, back when it was about local communities and about figuring out who are our neighbors and what's going on there. It's successful. It's growing well. I couldn't find their GitHub profile just now. I looked for it. I'm going to be emailing them about that. But I think if you have something like that in your area, you should look it up. And if not, check out Funport Forum and maybe contact them and see how you can get it locally because I think it's excellent. So that's that's mine. I'm Don, setting my know? VPN up to Vermont. Mine isn't nearly as fun as either of these. Mine is a much more practical study tool that uh, actually was the basis of much of my, my career in tech. It's a, a Ruby gem called Grape, which is like Sinatra, but for APIs. And I learned almost everything that, well, I, I learned about APIs being, by being told, Don, we, we need you to build an API. I'm like, oh, okay, what is that? I have no idea. Looks like we're using Sinatra. Maybe I can learn a little bit looking at that. And Grape came up in my searches and like 30 seconds later I had an API, which is amazing because I didn't even know what I was doing. And so now anytime I need to stand up an API, whether it's for fun, yes, that's the thing you can do is stand up an API for fun or, or for work. Like Grape is the, the first tool that, that I, I reach for because it's, uh, it's just an incredibly powerful and friendly tool for one very simple thing. I love the mixed metaphor of Grape being the first tool you reach for. It's tantalizing and yet <laughs> in reach. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Don. It was great talking to you. I wish we could have extended this. You know, let's just do this every week from now on. Just, just us. But that's it. Thank you all. (laughs) Take care. Thanks, everyone. Richard, Justin, thank you. This is just a quick note to say the Hippocratic License was not created by Dodd Gunnar Wilson, but by Coraline Ada Emka. It's available on firstdonoharm.dev. And as always, we will link to it in the show notes. Don wanted to make sure he wasn't inaccurately attributed for which we thank him very much. This podcast is brought to you by our friends at Linode. With 11 data centers worldwide, including their newest data center in Sydney, Australia, with enterprise-grade hardware, S3-compatible storage options, and their next-generation network, Linode delivers the performance you expect at a price that you don't. Get started on Linode today by going to linode.com slash sustain.